Welcome to the Teach Me Lit podcast. I'm Sophie Tuvey and I love talking about books and helping you to revise for English literature and go deeper in the texts you're studying. North and South chapters 19 to 20. Now here we have um, a juxtaposition between chapter 19 and chapter 20 with the two different social classes of Milton. Chapter 19, um, Margaret visits um, the Higgins family and meets a character called Boucher um, and he is one of the workers who's on strike and really, really struggling. He can't afford to, to feed his family. His wife is ill and the children are starving. He has eight children. And Boucher's coming to breaking point where he wants to break the strike because basically uh, the masters haven't given in to the workers' demands. Um, and so he doesn't feel that the strike is working. Now, this is juxtaposed in chapter 20 with Mr Thornton's grand dinner party with all these different masters of Milton present um, and uh, a visitor that they wanted to honour and then Margaret and her father are there as well. And so you've got the contrast of the horrible poverty that Boucher and the strike workers are suffering with with the sumptuousness of this lavish dinner in chapter 20. But it isn't quite as simplistic as the poor um, must be in the right and the masters must be in the wrong. Because actually Gaskell gives a lot of nuances in her depiction of both. So in chapter 19, we can see clearly that Boucher is not as good a worker as Higgins is. He isn't as reliable and a lot of the problems, financial problems that his family have had have been due to mismanagement, or at least this is what Bessie suggests herself. There's no doubt that the situation of Boucher's family is very grave and they're in desperate need of help and attention. But Gaskell doesn't suggest that they are completely blameless victims either. What is lovely about chapter 19 is that both Higgins and Margaret do everything in their power to help this family. Higgins gets money out of his own limited resources to go and immediately buy food to feed um, Boucher's children. And Margaret gives Bessie some of her own money and goes home, tells her own mother, who then gets Margaret to pack up a basket of food and send it immediately. Um, when Mr Hale hears about the situation of the Bouchers, he goes to visit him uh, the next day and he doesn't actually see Boucher himself but he speaks to his wife and the family um, and uh, what is really uh, interesting here is that all three of the Hales are active in doing something about the situation of this poor family. They're not just going to say, oh, well, that sounds terrible and do nothing. Um, and this reminds me a lot of Gaskell's own um, life because Gaskell was very practical. She came into contact with a lot of families in poverty like this through her work um, with the church and her husband being a minister. And to me, this sums up what Gaskell feels true religion is. Um, it's not standing by when a family's going hungry. Um, it's, it's getting your resources and doing what you can to help them. Now, um, Higgins is obviously believing 
that the strike is going to work. And he has that kind of complete confidence in the power of the union and in he believes that he understands all of the variables of the situation that the masters have got far too much money um, and that they should be raising the wages. However, we do know from what we've heard from Thornton that that actually isn't quite the case. Um, and so we're beginning to understand here that the strike is more complicated than we might believe. It might be our 21st century predisposition to favour the workers because we know of all the great social um, and economic injustices that generally they faced in life. Um, but it's it's definitely the case that it isn't a straightforward, clear-cut situation. And Gaskell emphasises through what several different characters say that actually sometimes the strikers can be a bit hard-headed and also quite foolish in clinging on and persisting in their demands when the masters cannot meet them. Now, just before I go into the Thornton's dinner, I want to just pick up on the social nuances here because when Margaret tells Bessie that she's going to this dinner, um, Bessie's really surprised. Um, She says they visit with the first folk in Milton, um, which means that, you know, in her mind, because Margaret's family is poor, relatively speaking, in terms of middle class poverty, um, she doesn't understand how they can have a ticket in if you like with this glamorous dinner at the Thornton's house um, and and Bessie says they think in a deal of money here and I reckon you've not getting much and Margaret says no but we are educated people um, and she says that Thornton is a man who owns himself inferior to my father by coming to him to be instructed which is really interesting because obviously Mrs Thornton throughout the whole thing looks down on Mr Hale as a simple professor or clergyman who's no good for anything else and Margaret sees it the opposite way round that Thornton is uneducated and therefore inferior to um, her father and she also comments I don't mean to blame Mr Thornton few draper's assistants as he was once could have made themselves what he is and she can't forget that those humble beginnings um, of Thornton's past. And Bessie repeats how amazing it is because the mayor and members of parliament have dined with the Thorntons. So theirs is truly a house of distinction. And Bessie said, I should be loath to have you look down upon um, and checks that Margaret has something suitable to wear, which thankfully she does from her London days. But Margaret herself is undergoing a crisis of conscience really on seeing this contrast with her own life and the lives around her of people workers in the strike she says you make me you'll make me feel wicked and guilty in going to this dinner and Bessie says some's pre-elected to sumptuous feasts others toil and moil all their lives long and Bessie accepts this as just a fact of life some people are rich and some people are not and and Margaret says we shall not be judged by that poor accident referring to how wealthy someone is, but by our faithful following of Christ. And here we have essentially the equality of faith that it doesn't matter how rich you are, how poor you are, and that all can be accepted in true religion. And that's what's the most important thing in Margaret's mind. Now, the description of um, the strike is really interesting because there's a really interesting image that Bessie uses. She says... 
but Masters has getting the upper hand somehow, and I'm feared they'll keep it now and evermore. It's that like the great battle of Armageddon. And so um, Bessie uses this religious language. Um, she refers to Armageddon, which is like the great battle between uh, Satan and God at the end of the world. And um, she uses that term to portray the bitterness of this fight between the masters and the men. Um, and Nicholas um, says, I know who will win um, with his usual confidence. Um, but Bessie sees it as um, a do to the death battle. And in a sense, this is true because both the masters and the men stand to lose everything from this strike. Because obviously, if the men aren't working, they're not getting any wages, their families will suffer. But also, if nobody's making the cotton products, the masters cannot fulfil the orders that have been given to them by, you know, presumably wealthy companies all over the world. And so if they cannot fulfill an order, then those companies um, will take their business elsewhere, leaving the factory to fold uh, completely. And if the factory was to, say, close through financial collapse, then both the masters and all the workers will be out of work. And so this is the point that Gaskell is trying to make, that the masters and, and men's survival depends on one another. And so pitting against each other in this bitter war, this Armageddon, um, is, is really unhelpful because it's, it's failing to see that actually they're on the same side. If um, the workers do well, the masters do well, and it should be vice versa. Now, Thornton obviously gives Mr. Hale his viewpoint as well, and he always does this on sound economic principles. Um, and he doesn't agree with those who've trampled down his, his fellows in their haste to get rich, which obviously is the very essence of capitalism, um, which the Victorian era says a lot about, because really the founding of the Industrial Revolution is all about capitalism and about how much money you can make with what you've got. Um, and Margaret revolts from Thornton's speech because she feels like he speaks as if commerce were everything and humanity nothing. And yet, this is juxtaposed again with the fact that he shows a lot of delicacy towards Margaret. He knows that her mother is ill and he privately offers her help and assistance, every convenience for illness that his own wealth or his mother's foresight had caused them to accumulate in their household. So he's got this discretion, this sensitivity, this kindness, although Margaret's pride revolts from accepting it, firstly because she feels that her mother's illness should really be a family secret, especially because her, her own father doesn't really know how serious it is, but secondly because you know, the idea of accepting help from Thornton suggests his superiority, which obviously she never wants to admit. So she tries to reconcile who Thornton is and the dinner is going to also help develop that um, a little further. Now, there's some really touching description um, in this chapter 19 of um, Boucher's speeches about his own family. Um, 
he says of his wife that she can't live long because she cannot stand the sight of the little ones clemming. And it's a kind of um, a slang word for when they're, they're starving um, and they're clemming up, like a bit like clamming up, you know, when you don't have anything to eat. Um, and it's, it's just um, a really poignant speech that he, that he gives. Um, and he gives deep sobs as well. So it's a very real um, and very difficult situation. And he makes an interesting comment about the union. Um, he, he takes a, a saying, Clem to death and see him a clem to death, ere you dare go against the union. And he says, you've no more pity for a man than a wild hunger maddened wolf. And he's talking there not about Nicholas personally, but about just generally the union, that the union have no pity, which draws a really interesting parallel with the masters, because as much as Margaret would like to believe that all the masters are really ruthless, merciless and cruel, the fact is the union can be merciless and cruel too. To a man like Boucher, in the union's eyes, you don't break the strike. And if you break the strike that's it, you're, you're going to be outcast and not accepted. Higgins says, there's no help for us but having faith in the union, but Boucher is less convinced. And I think um, it's just a really interesting contrast between Higgins, who is quite idealistic, and Boucher, this um, you know, poorer man, he's not as clever as Higgins is, he's not as good as his job, he's not good at managing things either, and he's got a much bigger family, uh, a lot of young dependents on him. But to compare and contrast uh, Higgins and Boucher, um, I think would be really interesting. And I, I'd like to say as well that that they are another parallel in the novel. There seem to me to be a number of characters in this novel who are parallels to one another. So you've got, for example, you've got Mrs. Hale, the kind of weak invalid woman, middle class, with Mrs. Thornton, who is his strength and power itself. Um, you've got Margaret being uh, paralleled with Edith, the wealthy uh, London lady. Um, who's just got married and, and settled abroad. Um, and then Bessie, the poor working class girl. And then with Fanny, who is um, Fanny Thornton, who's got everything she could ever want as well and is living a life of, of ease. Um, you've got the parallels between a man like Higgins and Thornton. Um, both of them hard working men, different social stations because of their wealth. Um, but what do they have in common? I mean, if Higgins calls Thornton a bulldog, well, Higgins himself can be pretty bulldog-like when it comes to the union and what he believes in too. And for all his talk about not liking religion and religious talk, Higgins certainly is very good at preaching the union's values. Um, and, and he does so to Boucher. You know, when Boucher is wavering with his doubts about the union, Nicholas is there to um, convince him otherwise. So you've got a number of clever parallels being drawn. And another one I just wanted to mention quickly was, is Henry Lennox, the lawyer with Thornton, because Henry Lennox, again, is a London boy. Um, he's wealthy, he's well-educated, he's got a good job. Um, and again, he contrasts with Thornton, who's obviously a rougher, more self-made man with a, a lesser degree of education. But in, in one sense, 
what is characterizes Henry is um his kind of satirical sense of humor and his kind of um cynicism and what's uh what's characterized about John is his honesty his straightforward manner of speaking uh, and that's something that that Margaret's going to really begin to admire now Margaret has to leave this this terrible scene uh in Bessie's house and then go into this different environment in chapter 20 of the Thornton's dinner and she says to her mother how am I to dress up in my finery and go off and away to smart parties after the sorrow I've seen today Um, and interestingly enough in this Penguin Classics edition that is the quote on the back cover so evidently you know uh, that this critic selected that as a really key quote that shows Margaret's character, her strength of character, that she sees this social struggle and her her own place in it, and she's not willing to overlook it. She's not willing to just put it out of her mind. She is affected by what she sees. Now, um, the the actual dinner, Margaret's surprised at how well she enjoys the dinner, um, and there's some interesting things to pull out here that both. Thornton and Margaret are becoming more interested in one another um, in a romantic way Um, and uh, Thornton shakes hands with Margaret for the first time and it says he knew it was the first time their hands had met though she was perfectly unconscious of the fact. Margaret looks very beautiful and Thornton notices her beauty and in a sense, because he knows that she views herself as superior, he doesn't even allow himself to talk to her much the entire evening. It's like he always knows where she is in the room, but he's sort of deliberately trying to hold himself at a distance. Um, but Margaret notices more of his good qualities. Um, it says that he was so straightforward yet simple and modest as to be thoroughly dignified. Margaret thought she'd never seen him to so much advantage. He was regarded by them as a man of great force of character, of power in many ways. And she begins to see a lot of his qualities and whereas perhaps in her house his straight forward no nonsense way of talking has jarred on her a little bit now that she sees him in this context she begins to appreciate it and she also likes generally the the type of conversation that is happening with these Milton men and and she says it's not in the used up style that wearied her so in the old London parties so Margaret's beginning to see through um, her old life she's beginning to see through the ways of the south um, and also the sort of superficiality of London, which I think, to be fair, she was always generally aware of. Um, whereas Margaret was trying on her dresses earlier on, um, she makes a comment to her mother that she hasn't altered physically in any way. And I think that's an interesting marker point because, yes, physically she's stopped growing and she's, she isn't any different, but emotionally... Um, and character-wise, she's definitely changing, and we're beginning to see that um, in in this dinner. Now, there's a really interesting conversation between Margaret and Thornton, they're only one by the looks of it, um, on what a gentleman is. Now, this is a real Victorian buzzword, gentleman. And traditionally, it referred to, you know, somebody of the middle upper classes who was well-educated, um, and 
it didn't really refer to wealth. Um, and, you know, some people would, would try and become a gentleman through their wealth, but it was meant to be more about the type of person they were and the way they behaved. Um, and so as she talks about how to define a gentleman with Thornton, he says, a man is to me a higher and a completer being than being a gentleman. Um, and Margaret asks what he means and he says, I take it the gentleman is a term that only describes a person in his relation to others. But when we speak of him as a man, we consider him not merely with regard to his fellow men, but in relation to himself, to life, to time, to eternity. And then he refers to Robinson Crusoe and a saint in Patmos, which again shows his learnedness. And even though he wasn't educated in the same way as, as traditional gentlemen, Thornton has high conceptual ideas. And he takes a term gentleman that in the Victorian era had, you know, a lot of petty social values attached to it. And he actually draws out a much more profound statement about what it is to be man. Um, and this, this surprises Margaret and there's this kind of fleeting connection between them. But then he moves on the moment it's broken. But I think there's important ground laid here for the beginnings of a relationship between the two of them. If you've enjoyed this podcast and found it helpful, please hit subscribe and share it with a friend. You can find me on Instagram and Twitter. Just search for Teach Me Lit. I'm always open to requests, so if you want me to talk about a text you're studying, get in touch. Thank you for listening. See you next time on the Teach Me Lit podcast.